Let's go ahead and open our Bibles to book of Daniel chapter 9. Book of Daniel chapter 9. As this morning we continue our look at biblical eschatology, the study of the last days, we are making our way through 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. As we made our way to verse 5, Paul then asks them to remember all that he had taught them while he was with them. For the Thessalonican church had received a letter or some word of knowledge or some type of uh, warning that they had entered into the day of the Lord, a period of time that the Bible uh, declares for the judgment of God upon this world, but also its restoration to its original created state. The Thessalonians were promised in 1 Thessalonians by Paul that they would not enter into God's wrath since they were in Christ Jesus. But being told this, they were concerned and they were afraid and they were uncertain about where they stood with the Lord. So Paul writes the second letter to them to reassure them. And by the way of doing so, he reminds them of the truth. Whenever we are shaken by our circumstances in life as a Christian, it is imperative at those moments that we do not abandon those things that we know to be true for those things that we don't know to be true. In fact, in those moments of insecurity and uh, being challenged by the circumstances of the uh, world uh, that we are surrounded by, it is imperative that we run to those things that we know to be true in God's Word. It is only in God's Word that we will find that sure foundation, that foundation of stone that will allow us you and I, to stand in the storms of life. And so Paul then, he just simply reminds them of what he had told them and taught them from the very beginning. That has caused us now to look back into the Old Testament and looking at some of the prominent prophecies concerning the second coming of Jesus Christ found in the Old Testament Without a doubt, one of the chief and most significant of those prophecies are found in Daniel chapter 9. And last week, we looked at the first 19 verses where Daniel is praying to the Lord. As he finds himself there in Babylonian captivity, he realizes that because uh, Darius had come to power, he realizes that the Babylonians had now been overthrown by the Medes and Persians, which was an indication that God said to look for, to show and to demonstrate that their Babylonian captivity was coming to an end. The reason that the Lord had allowed them to be taken to Babylon in the first place is because of their disobedience. They did not allow the land in which God had given them to rest on the various uh, periods of time that God had prescribed in the Old Testament law for the land to rest and to rejuvenate. And so they didn't allow that to happen for 10 cycles. And as a result, now God brings them in. And so they were in captivity for a period of 70 years, stated very clearly in the prophet Jeremiah. So as Daniel, being a man of the Word of God, realized and knew that Jeremiah had stated very clearly 
that only for a 70-year period of time would Israel be in the Babylonian captivity. And now with the succession of the uh, Babylonian empire by the Medes and the Persians, he realizes that that 70 years was now coming to an end. So he cries out to God and repents in one of the most incredible prayers offered in the Old Testament. I'd encourage you to read it and look at our sermon from last week where we went through it verse by verse. But this prayer was the reason that God sent to Daniel the angel Gabriel to give him one of the greatest prophecies that not only answered his question but went far into the future to show and to demonstrate that God was not only interested in the restoration of the nation of Israel back in their land, but eventually God was going to restore the entire fallen world that had been subjected to sin and to death. And so Daniel now, after his time of prayer, waiting on the Lord, he now is met by the angel Gabriel as we pick it up in verse 20 this morning. Now before we get there, I believe that this prophecy is so significant that Jesus Christ himself held the religious leaders and his people accountable for knowing its fulfillment. Now what would you say if I told you that the Bible says specifically when Jesus would arrive, what would you say to me? That we don't know the day or the hour? That's true about his second coming, but what about his first? Is it possible that this prophecy is so complex and so simple but profound at the same time that within it, he was actually telling his people when Messiah was going to arrive? See, I believe that's what this prophecy does. And I believe that at the moment of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, he wept because they did not realize the time of their visitation. Now, I told you to turn to Daniel chapter 9, but we're actually going to start there this morning. I'm keeping you guessing. No, I'm just kidding. We're actually, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. In Luke chapter 19, of course, we come to Luke's account of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And as he makes his way towards the city, picking it up in verse 37, Luke writes, then as he was now drawing near to the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multiple, uh, multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the fairies... Call, uh, fairies... fairies. <laughs> Wow. I wonder what we're supposed to conclude from that. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, 
Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemy will build an embarkment around you, surrounding you, and close you in on every side, and the level of, and level you, and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another. Because, notice this, because you did not know the time of your visitation. That word in the Greek, it's an interesting word. It means it's a time that they should have recognized. It's a specific time that they should have known. And yet, they did not recognize it, and they did not know it. And Jesus held them accountable for it, because they did not know the day and the time in which he were to arrive. Notice that. We don't know the day or the hour concerning his second coming, but here he says the day and the time, and you should have recognized my first coming. From where in the Old Testament would they ever be able to uh, understand and derive uh, the timing of his first coming? I believe that lies within the prophecy that we look at this morning. In Daniel chapter 9, and if you'll turn there with me in your Bible, we're going to be looking at verse 20 and begin reading there this morning. In verse 20, Daniel, after... offering this incredible prayer of repentance unto God for him and his people. Daniel now writes in verse 20, Now while I was speaking, praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication, that is my requests, before the Lord my God, for the holy mountain of my God, that is the area of the temple, Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, earlier on in Daniel's uh, book, you can read that for yourself, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering, about 6 p.m., and informed me. And talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill and to understand. At the beginning of your supplication, the commands went out, and I have come to tell you. For you are greatly beloved, therefore consider the matter and understand the vision. Wow. Talk about answered prayer. Wouldn't you like God to answer your prayers like that? Wouldn't it be amazing if you found yourself praying at the end of a day, a difficult day, you're raising your prayers before the Lord and all of a sudden the doorbell rings as you're waiting for Him? And there's Gabriel standing there. And it is interesting to me the way that Gabriel is mentioned throughout the Bible. He is an angel. 
And he seems to oversee the security of the nation of Israel and the things that God does in and through the nation of Israel, including the coming of the Messiah. Oh, I can only imagine what Gabriel looks like. I I don't know if I want to, though. I'd probably pass out and die right there and I'd have to cause him to give me CPR, you know. But Gabriel comes to Daniel. It is interesting to me that Daniel is praying on behalf of his people and himself, as he says very clearly in verse 20. He's praying and asking and confessing his sin and the sin of his people and presenting his supplications before the Lord, my God, for the holy mountain and my, uh, of my God, that is the temple. And while he is speaking, Gabriel comes to him, flying swiftly. And notice here, that Gabriel states to him, at the beginning of your supplication, the moment you started praying, Daniel, I was commanded to go forth. I was commanded to come to you. And I have come to tell you, and I think that it's interesting in how Gabriel begins. The very first thing that God wanted Daniel to know even before the revelation of the prophecy that he is about to give, which is so incredibly significant in and of itself. He wanted Daniel to know that in his time of difficulty, in his time of trouble, the moment you started praying, Daniel, I was commissioned to you. I was sent by God to you. And the very first thing that God wants you to know is how much you are loved. Isn't that fascinating? The very first thing, Daniel, you are beloved of God. I think that it is interesting that Daniel was reassured in such a way. I don't think the love of God can be talked about enough, do you? I think the love of God has the ability to change the hardest heart, crumbling it and making it soft once again. The love of God is what was demonstrated the moment that God decided to send His only begotten Son into this world. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whomsoever shall believe in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Sometimes in the midst of our trials and our tribulations and our troubles, sometimes the best thing that God can do for us is to remind us of how much He loves us. And that nothing that we ever experience in this life will separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that awesome? Daniel, you're loved by God. Now, Daniel's circumstances sure wouldn't have indicated that, right? I'm in Babylonian. I've been taken. I've been here for years. I was taken at 15, and now I'm in my 80s. Many people would have concluded that God had abandoned him, but the first thing that God says to him is how much he loves him. We can never base our understanding and our... um, the realization of God's love upon our circumstances. We can't do it. That's why God said, I've demonstrated my love in such a unique way that nothing can change it. Not a thing. I sent my son and he died and on the third day he rose again. I don't care what happens in this world. Nothing is ever going to change that fact. 
Daniel, I love you. You are beloved of God. This is what Paul, I believe, drew from the understanding of God's love when he wrote in Romans chapter 8, the understanding that nothing will ever separate us from the love of God, no matter the circumstances that we find ourselves in. You know, I think it would be appropriate to read that, don't you? Romans chapter 8, if you will. Starting in verse 31. After speaking on the sufferings that we would experience as Christians in this world, he then says, or I should say, asks the question, What then shall we say to these things about suffering for the Lord? If God is for us, verse 31, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. It is, who is it that shall condemn? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or of the sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. He says, but yet, I added the but, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Daniel, you are beloved. Folks, you are beloved by God. Okay, Daniel, it's time now. Get your notes, get your notepad, because I have come forth to give you skill and understanding. It's time to take notes, Daniel. Here we go. Because I have come that you may understand the vision. Verse 24. Now, 70 weeks are determined for your people and your holy city. Number one, to finish the transgressions. Number two, I'm adding that for you, to make an end of sin. Number three, to make reconciliation for iniquity. To bring in everlasting righteousness. To seal up vision and prophecy. And to anoint the most holy. Daniel, 70 weeks are determined for you and your people and your holy city. The Hebrew word there is 70 periods of time. Since they use the word weeks in Hebrew, it is 77-year periods of time uh, for a total of 490 years. Now, 
Daniel probably at that moment said, whoa, wait, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 time out. You said 70 years. Now we're at 490 years. How long is COVID going to be around, Lord? No, I'm kidding. That was just a little jab there. Okay, so you didn't get it. It is obvious that God is asking Daniel to think about something larger than just the moment that he is surrounded by. He is asking Daniel to look at the horizon rather than just looking at the moment that he is within. So 490 years for your people and for your holy city. But then he says something very interesting. To finish the transgression. To make an end of sins. To make reconciliation for iniquity. Undoubtedly at this moment, Daniel would have thought that he was simply speaking of Israel's disobedience to God and not allowing the land to rest when God prescribed it to rest. But that's not what he's saying here. He's talking about the transgression. And when he puts it in a single form such as this, he's talking about an individual event that has transpired that needs to be brought an end to. That is when mankind fell. The ultimate sin. When Eve ate and then Adam ate after her and sin entered into this world. God is not only dealing with the nation of Israel and the sin that they committed. God is once and for all going to deal permanently with the transgression. The ultimate sin that caused God's perfection to become tainted by sin and death. And to make an end of sins. And to make reconciliation for iniquity. Now Daniel, listening to this, would have said, whoa, that's much larger than just what I am considering and the captivity of the nation of Israel. Because he's speaking of someone greater. Someone's coming, Daniel, and he'll tell them him in just a moment. And in his coming, He's going to deal with the sin that was the transgression that took place in the garden ultimately. He's going to bring an end to the effects of sin. And he is going to once and for all reconcile those who have been uh, taken and destroyed by iniquity. Daniel is saying that this is the plan of God for the coming Messiah. This is it. And when Messiah comes, He will bring in everlasting righteousness to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Now I'm going to demonstrate for you that He is talking about Messiah as we enter into verse 25. But let, for a moment, camp on verse 24 because in this five-step plan... Six-step plan, three have been accomplished and three will be accomplished. Hebrew prophecy can be divided in such a way. Do you remember when Jesus first came into the synagogue and he began to read from the scroll and he read from the prophet Isaiah and then he stopped at a certain point 
and then he rolled up the scroll. He didn't finish the entire passage because he then said to all of them listening, in your hearing, this has been fulfilled, but only the portion in which he read. There was a portion yet to follow after that portion that he read. But Jesus knew that in his first coming, he wouldn't address those latter issues. Those would be addressed in his second coming, and that's why he stopped where he did, and that's why he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to them. I believe the same thing's happening here. In the first coming of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross is going to deal with, in finality, the sin, the transgression of Adam and Eve, right? Isn't that what Paul says, that all have sinned through Adam? But Jesus Christ came to pay the sin that Adam initiated? Secondly, to make an end of sins. For you and I, who are being renewed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, by Christ himself, as we are growing and being uh, sanctified by the Lord, realize that Paul made it again abundantly clear in Romans that the effects of sin, the old nature, have ceased now, right? And that all things have become new. It's not that we don't wrestle with these things anymore, but we don't have to obey those things anymore either. In the Spirit, we can walk in the newness of life. As Paul wrote in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, he said that all things have been made brand new. The old has passed away. All things are new for you and I in Christ. You see, you and I who have the Spirit in us as a believer in Jesus Christ are being renewed day by day. God is working in us. And we don't need to allow the effects of sin to reign within us any longer. In Christ, we've been given victory. In Christ, we've been set free by the truth. In Christ, His blood has washed us clean before God. And now the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, is sanctifying us into the image of Jesus Christ. And then He says, to make reconciliation for iniquity. The sin that once separated us from God. We now, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, when we put our faith and trust in Him, we are now reconciled back unto God, aren't we not? 2 Corinthians 5. Paul made it abundantly clear. But the world is still under the effects of of sin and death, isn't it? So it's not a total completion, but it has begun. So it is safe to assume to bring in everlasting righteousness, well, that'll certainly come at His second coming, won't it? To seal up vision and prophecy, well, we won't need those anymore because He'll be with us, right? And we'll be with Him in a millennial kingdom for a thousand years, Revelation 20. And then enjoying the new heaven and the new earth, Revelations 21 and 22. And then that temple spoken about in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 40 to 48, Jesus himself, the Most High, will anoint it with his presence in his second coming. So you can imagine by this time Daniel's probably on the floor gasping for air. He's like, oh my goodness, this is so much more than what I originally prayed about. Isn't that so like God? You know, you got to be careful what you pray for. You might get it. 
Or you may get a whole lot more. I was reading some time ago, and it just reminded me of the circumstances we were going through lately. Many have been praying for revival in America for the American church. Many have. And that's a good thing to pray for. We should pray for it every single day. Knowing that it begins with us. Knowing that God will then answer that prayer by bringing about circumstances that will turn His people and people back to Him. In England, as the pastors began to pray for revival in the 1920s and 30s, they saw that the church in England had started becoming uh, apathetic and complacent and carnal. And everyone thought themselves to be a Christian, but very few were born again. And so they prayed for revival. They wanted to see hearts on fire. They wanted to see a passion for Jesus Christ displayed in those who professed to have followed Christ. So they began to pray for revival. And one of the pastors said, we never thought in a million years what God would do to, try to bring about revival. You know what it was called? World War II. Some of the greatest revivals in England happened during the years of World War II. Churches were packed with people praying. Churches were filled on Sunday to hear God's word and to be encouraged. But it was one of the most horrific times in the world, wasn't it? Sometimes God's got to shake us up to wake us up, you know? If you're a parent of a teenager, you're all too aware of this. Sometimes you have to shake them up to wake them up. Sometimes God needs to do that with his own body. So Daniel verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and to build, rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The streets shall be built again and even the wall, or some of your translations say moat, even in troublesome times. Now a timeline has been given to Daniel for the promise that had been made above. Daniel, out of the 70 weeks, or 77-year periods of time, out of that 490 years, there will be seven seven-year periods, 49 years. And then there will be another 62 seven-year periods of time for a total of 483 years. And in that period of time, Messiah will come at the end of that 62-week period of seven years or um, what it, the number is escaping me right now. But... Seven years, we know Jerusalem took, it took seven years to rebuild Jerusalem. And then another 62, seven-year period of time transpired. And then Daniel is told, this is when Messiah will come. It is from the going forth of the command to rebuild Jerusalem. The term going forth and command are connected grammatically in the Hebrew language. And it is a decree that a king would make. 
So there are four incidents, uh, instances in the Bible that could possibly be equated with this command. But not all of them had been given by kings. So some of them are to be dismissed. Scholars believe that what Daniel is being told here was fulfilled through King Artaxerxes in Nehemiah chapter 2. When Nehemiah was given the commission by the king to go and to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem in 445 BC, this was the beginning of that period of time. In fact, we know the actual day, March 14th, in our calendar years. Seven years after that, the city was rebuilt and the temple was rebuilt. And then there was another 62 years. I'm sorry, 62 seven-year periods of time. For a total of 483. So now Daniel has a very broad perspective of what will take place. And so the reassurance that Jerusalem will be rebuilt has been given, but also to Messiah. And some translations say anointed one, but the word there in the actual Hebrew is a word that is used specifically for the Messiah. But then notice, verse 26, after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. That means killed, but not for himself. We know that, of course, after the first coming of Jesus Christ, for 30 years he lived there in Jerusalem. His ministry then began as a 30-year-old and transpired for three years. At the end of those three years, he was crucified. This word karat in the Hebrews... Older scholars believe meant being killed by being pierced. Very interestingly, in latter years, we have discovered, in latter years, we've discovered that the word karat also means one killed in the beginning of a covenant. Meaning, just as the Old Testament process of creating a covenant by cutting an animal in two and having the parties of that covenant walk in between them, or in one case where God walked between it himself, Christ is killed for the establishment of a covenant. Isn't that interesting? Now we are over 700 some years before this would to take place. And God's giving him these answers and this fulfillment. The term not for himself is a term that is found in the King James and New King James Bible. In the newer translations, there's great debate that it should be more rendered in the English uh, and for nothing. And so, uh, meaning that in his death it appeared that he accomplished nothing, And yet he was establishing the ultimate covenant between man and God through his death and resurrection. But then it goes on to say, And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come 
shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. And the end, until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Of course, after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, 70 AD, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. And Israel was laid to waste for 2,000 years until that miraculous moment in the 1940s when God reestablished the nation of Israel as he said he would in the book of Ezekiel. Establishing and setting up the stage for the Messiah's return. The prince who is to come. The book of Daniel speaks clearly that the empire that would rule during the time of Jesus would be the Roman Empire. The legs of iron within the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw. An individual there would be responsible. The emperor there would be responsible for the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Now all of this is fulfilled in the first coming and shortly after the first coming of Jesus Christ. Now why did Jesus say to those on the day of his triumphal re-entry into Jerusalem, you should have known the day, you should have known the time. Sir Robert Anderson wrote a book in the 1800s called The Coming Prince. Sir Robert Anderson was a detective with Scotland Yard in England during a very troublesome time in England. In fact, Sir Robert Anderson was the detective that brought Jack the Ripper to justice. He was a devout Christian, and he wrote a book called The Coming Prince because he saw within it that Jesus Christ was clearly depicted in coming at such a time. So he looked at the scriptures and he researched diligently and compiled it all in his book, his research, his notes, his discoveries. And he looked and discovered that from March 14th, 445 BC, now I'm using uh, our reference of dates, if that was the decree that started this process, He then took into account a seven-year period, I'm sorry, seven seven seven-year periods of uh, of time. You try this. See how easy it is for you. Uh, Seven seven seven-year periods of time and a 62 seven-year periods of time to 483 years. Using the Jewish calendar of 360 days, taking into consideration all the considerations of variants that need to be considered, he discovered that that came out to 178,880 days. So he mapped it out and he came to the conclusion that Jesus Christ came into Jerusalem April 6, 32 AD, the exact day that he rode in on the back of that donkey. This is why Jesus held them accountable because they knew They should have known the time of his arrival. I believe this is one of the greatest prophecies in the Bible. There are those who have differing opinions. 
in studying those opinions of this prophecy, I've discovered that many of them do not fit what Daniel has been described. And as a result, I don't believe can be warranted. For example, they start the a decree uh, from someone other than a king, but that's not what it says in the Hebrew. It says a king will bring forth the decree. Or the dates come to erroneous places in time where nothing of any real significance happens. There are some who are so threatened by the accuracy of Daniel's prophecies that they try to simply dismiss it and say and try to uh, uh, convince us that this was all filled through the individual named Anicus Epiphanes. When he came in and destroyed, uh, or I should say defiled the temple by sacrificing a pig on it during the period of the Maccabean Revolt. Daniel 11, and you can look at Daniel 10 and 11. But none of them fit. None of them fit. But one of the things that Sir Robert Anderson also discovered is that you and I have been given 69 seven-year periods of time that have been fulfilled, right? But notice what verse 24 says. 70 seven-year periods of time. There's one seven-year period of time that still has not been fulfilled. It is interesting that in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, it says that the time period from Revelation 6 to 19 is divided into two periods of 1,260 days. Two periods of 1,260 days equals the exact amount of days that are found in a seven-year period of time in the Jewish calendar. And that period is divided into two. I believe that that seven-year period is the period that we know as the tribulation period. The last three and a half years will be the great tribulation period. And it is still yet to come. And in verse 27, that time will come with the arrival of one on the world stage that will draft a covenant agreement with God's people Israel. Now, this covenant agreement could not take place if Israel wasn't back in their nation, right? They would have been a scattered people throughout the world. But now that they are in their nation, they can sign this covenant. Verse 27, And then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Notice that. One week. One seven-year period of time. But in the middle of the week, notice what this individual will do. He will bring an end to sacrifice and offerings And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. So what he is saying is this, that one is going to make a covenant with the nation of Israel. The first one on the scene in Revelation chapter 6 is the Antichrist, the one on the white horse who has a bow and arrow with him. That is not Jesus Christ. That's the Antichrist. Jesus Christ comes in Revelation 19. 
on the white horse with a sword. But at the halfway mark, he's going to change. Revelation chapter 12 tells us that after 1260 days, three and a half years, in fact, it even says that, times, times, and half a times. Time, times, and half a times is three and a half years in the book of Revelation. That he's going to, he's going to suppress all worship. Revelation 13 goes on to say that he's going to establish an image of himself and demand to be worshipped as God. And 2 Thessalonians 2 says the exact same thing. But Pastor Eric, what happened between the 69th year and the 70th year? Why has there been so much time that has passed in between the two? Paul talks about that too. He talks about the time of the Gentiles the church age, the time in which God was now going to take the gospel into all the world and by His grace through Jesus Christ offer reconciliation to all that will come to Him. So the stop clock had been stopped. It had been after the crucifixion of Christ and His resurrection and the church going into the world, the stopwatch was stopped. But it's going to start again. It's going to start again. Well, when will it start again? It'll start again when that which is restraining the rise of the Antichrist is removed. And that'll take us right back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 next week. And after that which is restraining the Antichrist's rise the clock starts ticking again. Wow. Amazing. After 33 years of studying God's Word and reading this again, I have full faith and confidence in the accuracy and the infallibility of God's Word. His Word won't let you down. He won't let you down. And that's why His Word won't let you down. He might not give you all that you want, but He'll provide all that you need. He'll never leave you nor forsake you, and nothing in this world will ever separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. I love the fact that the first thing that the angel said to Daniel is, you're beloved by God. And maybe you need to hear that today, that God loves you unconditionally. He loves you. He may not approve of all that you do. and He may uh, not allow you to continue in your sin because he loves you too much to leave you the way he found you. He'll bring about trials and tribulations to bring those sins out of your heart so you can see and repent of them. But he does it because he loves you. And that's what this is all about. Daniel, you're thinking about the restoration of the nation of Israel. Daniel, I'm going to tell you about the restoration of all things and that's going to come through my son, Jesus Christ. You're looking at the nation of Israel. Daniel, I'm looking at the entire world. And though we are going through incredibly difficult times in our world today, let us know and understand that Paul, from his position of suffering, knew that nothing, absolutely nothing, was going to separate him from the love of God. So whatever the world brings to us, 
Let us know that and confidently stand within that. Humbly. In the grace of our God. Well, I hope this has whet your appetite even further. And next week we'll continue on as we find Paul talking about that in which is restraining the rise of the Antichrist and when that will be removed.